Welcome to I Only Eat Hamantaschen, uh, the only podcast where we only eat prune hamantaschen. Um, I'm John Darnell, and I have a prune hamantaschen from just down the street. Well, welcome to Hamantaschen Talk. We used to <laughs> we used to make hamantaschen at home growing up. Our how home is, is there not? How is there not a hamantaschen talk podcast? <laughs> there Come is on. no John. You're on it. Yeah, get, man. Get with the program. Hamantaschen talk. This one is prune. I believe prune is kind of the canonical hamantaschen. Prune or raspberry, right? Well, poppy is a, is actually a mm. real traditional flavor. I, I, it probably depends on. Where, what region you're from? Mm-hmm. I grew up with poppy being pretty traditional. Ashkenazi or non-Ashkenazi? Uh, I'm Ashkenazi, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's also probably regional, like my family's Czech or oh, yeah. Bohemia at the time. I grew up with making, uh, and this might have been just like a bread-making family. We made yeasty ones, so these are like a little more pastry. This is a shortbread one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so we made more like yeast dough. Right, so it's like a much bigger outer side. I think I probably uh, probably already plugged the cookbook Olive Trees and Honey on the last uh, on the last season. It's a collection of Jewish recipes from around the world, and you learn these distinctions when you're when you're baking or cooking with it. Like some of these are shorter breads, and some of these are are yeasty breads, and the yeasty ones are real good, but the short ones are a whole different vibe. So, hi. I'm Joseph Fink, podcaster and novelist, and this is the show where I talk with John Darnell, singer and songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, about what it means to be a fan, to be an artist, and to be both at once. We are going song by song through the brand new Mountain Goats album, In League with Dragons. Today we talk about the song Younger, which at the time, before the album changed names, was the title track, but it still in its own way serves as a key for the rest of the album, right down to the origin of its chord pattern. All right, so this leads us obviously and logically into our song to, uh, today, which is so. This is actually an interesting one because this uh, song changed names. I'm not clear what the final one is. Is it called Younger? Yes, it is. Okay, because it used to be called Bitter Traces, mm-hmm. and then the album is called Younger, mm-hmm. but it used to be called Hyenas at Night. No, Hyena singular. Oh, Hyena at Night. Um, and the the thing about the album title Younger is it has quotes around it. I should even bring it up because like that's there for contemplation. Not the author sitting there saying, well, here's why it has quotes around it, right? It's there to think about what's, what does it mean to put something inside quotation marks. But it, the inspiration for that is uh, my uh, friend Roz's album uh, uh, Ashes that came out in, I think, 85. Uh, they had quotes around Ashes, and he uh, wouldn't really explain to me why. <laughs> and uh, and I, But uh, for years, I've thought that was interesting. It does something to a word when you put it inside quotation marks. And it, one thing it does, I think, is uh, points out to the reader that there's a speaker behind anything that you read and that they may have their own ideas about the thing being said. And so might you, right? Um, everything has a speaker. There's a presumed speaker. But when we don't have quotation marks, when we have a narrator, often we sort of disappear the speaker and it becomes a, a voice of authority somehow. There's something necessarily authoritative about any writing, right? And so the right writing inherently asserts authority in some way. And quotation marks are one way of, of playing with that, of like of pointing out that you don't have to take anything an author says at face value, and you probably shouldn't, and that the author himself may or may not, may or may be spelling out all his own assumptions about a word. And younger, I think, is a pretty loaded word. So, but yeah, it was called Bitter Traces. It was just it, it was its original thing, which is just a lyric. I didn't have a title. I usually begin with a title, but I wrote this song in the basement of the Riviera in Chicago on tour. I know I was uh, in a dark mood about something. I mean, I don't know if it was about something. I think I might have, you know. Not every dark mood is about something in particular, but I really liked that it, it came out as images instead of a story. You know, it's a, there's a story in there, but it takes a little unpacking. Which I, I think you could say about a lot of this album. Yeah, it's a, it's a 
But like the Aberstiffing Dog that we did a little while back, that's pretty narrative. An emergency team arrives on the scene mm-hmm. and, uh, and describes the scene and says, well, this is going to take the dog. There's not going to be any live bodies in here, right? So I mean, that's what happens in that sure. song. But yeah, in, in this one, it's hard to... I, I really like the movement of this song. It kind of satisfies this desire I have to be able to be, write something very evocative where the story is open enough that you can situate yourself in it from a number of angles. The quotation to remind people that there's a speaker reminds me of that great Ani DeFranco line, uh, which is, was it, every song has a you, the yeah. you that the singer sings to. That's right. I, yeah, that's right. And actually, this is a song that uh, Ani DeFranco was the the demo. Uh, well, you have a demo and pre-production and final on this, right? I have a, we'll get to this, but I have a number of different versions yeah. of this one. Oh, you there, probably have the soundcheck version, too. I right? have one that's labeled Primal Scream. Yeah. And I have one that's labeled Upstate. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Upstate refers to Annie DeFranco, right? Okay. Uh, because that was the original rhythm. Crank that siren high. Drain the wellspring dry. Map out your cord. I have, let me look through. Uh, I might have others. Uh, keep talking while I look. Well, the rhythm, is there a guitar? You know, there's a bunch of guitars out in the hallway. There's no reason why. Could somebody bring me a guitar and then I will just, I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about instead of saying dun dun, right? And uh, in this podcast, we don't worry about the sounds of doors and stuff like that thing. Oh, no, an acoustic. Uh, sorry. Let's see. We, we don't go with that newfangled stuff. <laughs> I have uh, this version. Yeah, that's, that's a demo. I think that might be the dressing room demo. Yeah, this is labeled Bitter Traces 3. I have Bitter Traces... No, that's home. It's a home demo. I have Bitter Traces Upstate. So that's that's after we got... Oh, no, that's Maya's another home demo with a with a reel from GarageBand. Okay. Why, why Upstate? Because Annie DeFranco's from Upstate. She's from Buffalo. Uh, it's it's so, a real question whether Buffalo is Upstate. To a person who has no, 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 uh, no, no skin in the game there? Sure. Is it New York City? And is it Westchester County? No, then it's upstate. <laughs> I agree with. You. There's a lot of question of because I live like just a little north of Poughkeepsie, and so yeah. there's a, I I often say I live upstate, and there's like people who will yell at me because I'm south of Albany. So yeah. am I really upstate? Yeah, no. I mean, I just, I just it's I was it, the thing is it was a quick labeling. So thank you very much. It's not like I sat down and went, okay, well now what's the correct way to refer? I was like, well, it's Buffalo, but I didn't want to write Buffalo. That you know, upstate sounds sounds cooler. <laughs> with all respect to Buffalo, but so the original. Went, well, the original actually uh, didn't have that seven in it. It was this. That right? And it was all that. So that it's just like a chord. descending kind of bass line. Right. And I wanted to play it a couple times to see if any Mountain Goats fans from way back understand how that informed the lyric. And then that changed to this when I got to, to writing the other, the more rhythmic, the... Right? And that just, tonally, that really broadens it out, and I think it complicates the lyric a lot, right? But the thing is, this... Is this... is a chord progression from a song called No, I Can't off of a tape called Transmissions to Horus. Oh, sure. A tape that I made when I was younger. (laughs) You bought me some chocolates 
And you bought me a rose And you brought me a paper bag And you brought me a lamp Thank you for the chocolates and so that's what that is about, is the chord, the music. And there's a bunch of little jokes in this. Not, you know, jokes is a good word, actually. Um, there's a bunch of little things in this record that are, that are playing with that, right? With Because with, I've grown musically. You're going to grow musically. Some people, in, in every genre, there's people who sort of don't want you to grow. They want you to do the thing that you do, right? And that's fine. I get it. I mean, there's plenty of artists who I like for a long time. You know, Nick Cave is one. I love Nick Cave to a certain point. And then I'm no longer with him where he's going. I don't say that he's run out of ideas or anything because I know that's not true. He's just, I have less interest in his journey at some point, you know. And he still does stuff that, like, knocks me over from time to time. But you get pretty committed to most artists, you know, to their shtick for at, at some point. And then when they grow, people go, oh, well, you know, his earlier stuff was better. I'd go, it's usually not true, actually. Usually the later stuff is better in practically every way except that you don't relate to it as much. And so, which happens a lot, you know. But then depending on where anybody gets on, you know. It depends. There's plenty of people who join the Mountain Goats around the time of the Sunset Tree, which for plenty of old school Mountain Goats fans was about two albums too late. <laughs> and so, but I mean, the, the other thing is like, because life's long, you navigate these as long as you go. Like I have come back to later psychedelic furs. For the longest time, I was the first two albums purist. After the second album, I don't care, right? But then they did this amazing late career arc thing on a record called Book of Days, right? It was so good that it made me go, well, I should go revisit some of the earlier and some of the stuff that I had written off. And I had been wrong. You know, it was like, actually, no, they were doing interesting stuff. It just wasn't the first two albums, which had been such a powerful force in my life that I didn't want to hear, you know, their popular stuff. But I have people who really rep for mirror moves. I, I need to dig deeper on that. But anyway, the music informed the, the, the journey of the lyrics by being this, this much more like this. At the time I wrote that one, that was actually a pretty complex thing for me to be doing. I didn't, I was palm muting, right? That was new to me. And then to go. Well, I couldn't have really done that at all in 1993. Yeah. And then even less so could I have gone. I would never even found that second chord, that seven there, um, or is it a nine? But yeah, so that's one of that's some of the growth of this song is that it goes from being literally the exact chord progression I wrote when I was younger to uh, uh, what's the opposite of a ghost? <laughs> the opposite? I mean, a person? This is more of a this is a Socratic question. <laughs> no, a, per, a person's not the a person's the middle station. It's an angel, I guess. Right? It's, I mean, it's, the opposite of it's, it's not a ghost of the old progression. It's the angel of the old progression. The not perfected, but the 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 version that that it had to die to become. One, two, three, and... Crank that siren high Drain the wellspring dry Map out your coordinates Send out scouts by day Dole out mercenary pay For restless young subordinates It never hurts to give thanks to the local gods 
You never know who might be hungry It never hurts to scan the windows on the upper floor I saw a face there once before When I was younger The torch of flame. Call the night by name. Stake out your dark position. Lie in wait. By the gleaming city gate. Try not to lose sight of the mission. It never hurts to give thanks to the broken bones You had to use to build your ladder Moment close at hand Half of you will never understand And it doesn't really matter Big smile on my face Capsule just in case Underneath my tongue there Voices in the breeze I heard voices once like these When I was younger Blood rushing to my I know that sweet warm taste and the bitter trace Storm right down that hill If I don't know one will follow me right through the chaos This whole house is doomed even the bit parts get consumed Prepare a grave for Menelaus It never hurts to give thanks to the navigator Even if he's spitting out random numbers I knew what those figures meant And what they hoped to represent when I was younger Are there other tracks on this album that started out playing around with older chord patterns? Nothing that started out, but I keep noticing. This is the thing, because there's only so many notes in the scale, and because you're limited by your own, you know, just by your own having developed a style and stuff, uh, you notice when you are not referencing yourself, but when you're falling into one of your old patterns. And if you're me these days, John Worcester really helped me with this then you find some way you can mess with that so you're not repeating yourself. So you're like, so many old Mountain Goods songs, this is the rhythm. And at some point after we made an album or two together, John Worcester said, this is really good about some song, but this is in your default rhythm. I think I told this story last year, uh, that you know this is in your default rhythm. 
Don't be sad about that. Every songwriter I've ever worked with has one. But there's only so much your drummer can do with your default, right? At some point, he's going to, and once the drums are in, people will notice it's the same beat. Now, there's things you can do around that with adding percussion or taking notes out, you know, and so forth. But it challenges me as a writer to always be trying to stretch to, like, see if I have a song that goes, what if instead I just play on the chord, right? And when I go to the D, what if I just go... I want that propulsion, but I can get that from the bass, or I can get it from the horn section, I can get it from a number of places, and maybe I can even go, I can you know, give it a sort of an upswing, except that that's actually a song from the first full-length CD, right? <laughs> called Azo's Lady and Talty Clock, right? And, and that's the thing, is you wind up in conversation with your previous work, there's a compelling case to be made that after the first thing that you write or make, everything you make thereafter is in conversation with that piece. And except that each each subsequent thing is in consequ- is in conversation with all the stuff that came before it. Do you think it's the first thing you make or the first thing that people pay attention to? No, you've always made you know you made things as a kid, presumably, right? Yeah, no, I think to some extent the first thing people pay attention to was still in conversation with the stuff that they didn't, right? Yeah, but but yeah, I do think I do think you probably put a pin in the one that got you the charge, right? I mean, I think that that is a. That's an inevitability. It's like the one that then somebody says, hey, give me more of that. I mean, for those of us who like to perform, that's cocaine, right? It's like you just go, oh, yeah, okay, I want to do that again. I want that response again, you know, many of us anyway. Um, But I do think whatever that first stuff was, it was in conversation with probably in in quite adversarial conversation. It was like angry at the stuff that hadn't gotten the attention, angry at the stuff nobody seemed to care about, you know. And there's a little of that informing every bit of it, right? But But, yeah, I do think... Eventually, all of a person's work is in conversation with previous iterations of it because you are probably chasing down some ideas that you that if you could resolve them, you'd be free of the desire to make the work. <laughs> so. I mean, I was thinking about this because – so Meg and I went and saw the Broadway uh, revival of Angels in America recently. Right. We actually watched it with Tony – Tony Kushner was sitting a few rows away from that, us. Andrew Garfield. That's the guy on Monk, right? So, <laughs> Andrew so Garfield, by the way, uh, I – had never really watched him anything incredible, incredible as prior, like really way better than a celebrity on Broadway needs to be. I want you to continue telling the story, but I just feel obligated to, because this has happened once during our tapings. It's like, I know that there's a thing that exists called Angels in America, and that's everything else you're talking about is utter mystery to me. None of these people. <laughs> Andrew Garfield, famous actor. He did, a right. real, he did a real good job with the acting. Um, Love to Andrew Garfield. But the thing I was thinking about is Angels in America is – Almost that the moment it came out became this canonical work in American theater. Right. No, I do. I do know that about it. That it's giant. Right? So. And I mean, he's written a few movies, but Tony Kushner's really done nothing like it since. And that was early '90s. He wrote right. it. And Meg and I were talking about that. And just maybe you only get one of those. You get the one that's like defining, and that's okay. Like it, it, a lot of it doesn't need to be defining. It can just be work that's very good. Yeah. I mean, definitive works always feel like such a, you know. It wouldn't matter what Gordon Gano did. That first Violent Femmes album is so iconic. Sure. That, you know, I know for several albums, the Violent Femmes were like going, hey, we're still doing cool stuff. And everybody's like, add it up, add it. Like, you know, me too. Like, I was there at the time and I bought the first one and like, that was a life changing record for, for me and for so many people. To be 16 in the summer that the first Violent Femmes came, album came out was to feel like, here is a new piece of music. That belongs to us. Every it was like a common coin. Everybody, you know, when that stuff came on at a party, 
everyone was there for it. You know, I played that thing down to the grooves. And the second one, Hallowed Ground, came out. And most people went, well, it's just not as good. And boy, I tried very hard to claim it was better. I really wanted it to be better. Oh, it's a good record. But the first one has a special thing. There are a number of things in rock that are that way, where people don't seem to have been able to shrug off the burden of having made a first record that landed really hard. And that's why I recommend writing stuff that all but almost nobody likes for at least seven years before you actually try to write stuff people will like. Okay, really, really, and you got to make the barrier for entry super high. You got to record your stuff while the TV is on, right? And when somebody tries to tell you, "Hey, I could fix that," fire them, right? You say, "No, I don't want you to fix anything." And we're like, "I had, I had an engineer once trying to tell me, hey, this is a lot of phase on this. Do you want me to fix that?'" And I would say, no, so leave it the way it is. And to most people, phase is very unpleasant to hear, but I can't hear it. Right? Phase doesn't, I don't, it's phase one of the things. What is phase again? Uh, for this, we have to bring the engineer in uh, because Vin, I can't. Can you get on mic? Vin, would you please explain to our listeners what phase is? The guy who's been mixing every one of these episodes you've heard is coming into the room. He's going through the airlock. Studios yeah. have airlocks. You can sit where I'm sitting. We're going to talk about sound for a minute. Uh, welcome to I Only Listen to Phase. Okay. <laughs> Sound is physical. Yeah. It travels in a wave. It exists in space. You just can't see right. it. Yeah. So when something is out of phase, the the peak of one waveform is occurring during the valley of another waveform. Right. So phase is just the direction of the waveform, I guess is a Right. And when something has when something is said to be out of phase, right. what's, that, what's that you have an ear for phase, you can hear it? Sure. And what's it sound like? What's the effect of that? It's kind of a swishy sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. It gets but, swishy. So when when MP3s sound all crushy and you notice that the like that the that the that the waveform of it doesn't feel as big as a file, is that phase related or no? Well, one thing that's happening with MP3s is that it's robbing the top end of information. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you're hearing like that like garbled sound is actually just holes of information it's holes, that are gone. missing pieces is so crazy. Like you hear a cymbal crash and it's like has a little bit of a yeah, yeah. thing. It's just because it's not the whole crash. It's, it's just not the parts the that your ear can yeah. maybe make can call a crash when it hears it. That's wild. It robs most from the top end. Yeah, the MP3, and that's what mo- almost everyone is listening. With the AAC is slightly better, right? I think so. And you high res yeah. if it's a 320 MP3. Yeah. Also, MP3s yeah. feel like they sound a lot better now, right? Yeah. Like they, 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 you, you get much higher quality MP3. You can you can get three twenties, but the actual exactly. straight. What's the normal? The older ones were one eighties, right? Isn't that right? I think the ones when it when it first started were like the iTunes sold probably one twenty eight. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like back in uh, this is this hi I'm a millennial. We had like Kazaa in high school, yep. and I remember ones being in like the ninety is ninety six a number ninety eight. Of course, yeah, yes. and it's those a lot of those problems. were yeah. garbage. No, the ninety sixes were, were really terrible. <laughs> I was getting a lot of Thai pop from websites where I couldn't read any of the characters on them, and a lot of those were all ninety six kilobits per second. They were just crazy. Yeah, and so the, the worst quality MP threes are ones which have been uh, compressed twice. Yes. So if you take an MP3 and then recompress it at, right. say, a smaller... Oh, I know. I, I've had to do that a couple times with <laughs> Welcome to Night Feel Weather, and I really hate doing it. But, but occasionally yeah. people will only give me an MP3, and then I'm like, well, I'm going to have to recompress your work, and it's going to sound bad. But Welcome to I, I only never <laughs> transcode MP3s. <laughs> so I'm going to hop on the soundboard. Ben's going to take over hosting. <laughs> so yeah, with stuff, in phase, stuff that's out of phase, like I, uh, we took some stuff to John Goldman. He was like, well, there's phase all over this thing. And I was like, 
you know, I, I can't hear it. And he said, yeah, some people can't. Uh, but if you once you hear it, you never unhear it. Uh, I no longer have any idea what our original jumping off point was, but I don't really care because I love to hear engineers talk about their stuff because it's so – it really points out to you that, like, how much has to go on for you to have the profoundly subjective experience of someone's music. You know, it's like yeah. – it's so much bigger than you think it is. You know, And at the same time, so much more knowable. You know, it's like it's math. You know, it's science. It's not, it's not how somebody felt when he said something. It's literally the question of the velocity of air moving, you know, air and, and tone. Well, it's also, uh, you know, talking to engineers reminds you, you know, because both of us uh, in very different ways have found commercial success in manipulating sound. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have to know a lot about sound to do that. Like, I, I, no, even, right. I even sound edit things and I still don't. I wouldn't be able to point out phase to you. Like the technical side of things yeah. is such a, a science that you don't Many people need. shun learning about it, I think, because, you know, well, you got to stay, you, you got to focus on what you're actually doing. But like when we were making this record, you know, Matt Ross Spang was the engineer and he's totally amazing. And he was really, you know, Brandon Eggleston, who uh, tours with us and is also an engineer for me, is always, I'm always hitting with questions. And, and I love when these guys explain this stuff. It's like, for me, it's like talking to a magician who's, who's like, in a world where magic actually exists, you know, and it's like saying, oh, yeah, no, what you do is you put the, the the scarf over the glass and then you know these words that you say under your breath and people don't hear them and it causes a dove to appear inside the glass, right? And that's what they're doing is like, you know, uh, talking about the different microphones and how they work and, you know, uh, and slight differences in capsule, you know, which can be – there's some mics that look completely different. The SM7 is one. It's like it's very similar to, I think, a 58. Vin, is a 58 that the SM7 is almost the same capsule or is, in fact, the same capsule? No, he says, no, I feel like the SM7 is like shares a capsule with one of the Shures with the 57 or 58. But to me, it sounds completely different, you know, uh, when I hear it in mix. But then it's the other thing. When you're listening to it during tracking, it's different. You know, uh, this stuff is very fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing, I guess, you start. I mean, I definitely know a lot more about audio than I did three years ago. And you've been doing this since the early 90s. So, like, even if it's not something you're trained in, just being around it this long, you start to get opinions, you start to hear from people that know, and gradually you reach a point where you hate SM7s. You know, I should actually, for the, well, the reason I grew to hate the SM7 is precisely because it always sounds right when you're tracking, and in rough mixes behind the board, you go, oh, that sounds great. And then when I hear it, finally, it doesn't, for me, the presence of something that, you know, like an RE20, but but almost anything else, for me, cuts through better. And that's one thing I want from a vocal mix is for not for the vocal to be mixed hot and high, but for it to cut through, for it to sort of occupy its own space. I feel like the SM7 plays really well with other instruments, you know, that like when you're trying to get a smooth, even mix, I feel like it sits well. But the RE20 that I like is a drum mic, right? That's what it's, it's I think Stevie Wonder was the guy who, who said, let me, let me use that on my voice. And, and it's also, it's a radio broadcast mic. That's the other chief application for it, I think. But yeah, I now want to write to Matt because he kept a list of all the mics I used. We did this record at Blackbird, and uh, and their mic locker is just bonkers. There's like a – I mean, because microphones, good microphones are very expensive, right? And so you go to a good studio and say, do you have a C20? And they will say, yes, we have two. At Blackbird, which is a huge studio in Nashville where, you know, it's owned by uh, John McBride, who's married to Martina McBride. And, and there's like – it's a huge complex of studios. And you say, do you have a C20? And they go, yeah, we have – um." I think we have 30 of those. <laughs> it's like the mic locker is just bonkers. Uh, and uh, the Josephson mic we only used on Clemency for the Wizard King, but I really love the sound of that one. Hello, Joseph here. I have two books coming out this year. Seriously. May 11th, 2021. 
the first 10 years, two sides of the same love story. So there is a love story that happened behind the scenes of Welcome to Night Vale between me and Meg Bashwinner, MC and tour manager for the live Night Vale show. In this memoir, we recount the first 10 years of our relationship year by year without consulting each other beforehand. It's a funny and romantic story about how differently we experience and remember our lives. Then on July 20th, 2021, The Halloween Moon, my first ever novel for ages 10 and up. Esther Gold loves Halloween, until the year that Halloween night just won't end. Even she doesn't want Halloween to last forever. No matter your age, if you are a fan of what I do, I think you're going to love this book. Get these books wherever you get your books. So coming back to Younger, um, with something like Going Invisible 2, there was this real shift from demo to final, but right. it sounds like it was a, a maybe a shorter process, that it was like, this is what it'll sound like, and then you change your mind. With Younger... We didn't even talk about it until we got to the session. Is with, Go- with Going Invisible 2, we, we rehearsed it at speed, at my version, uh, when we rehearsed as a band a few weeks or a month before leaving for Nashville. I was thinking this one's going to be hard to get what I heard. Right? It's going to be hard to find because none of us are Tom Petty or Roy Orbison. Like none of us were in the Traveling Wilburys, and it was a Traveling Wilburys sort of pastiche or a Jeff Lynn ELO pastiche. But yeah, that was that was a sudden in vivo thing where like she was playing, I started singing slowly. And was, we got time. What if we try it like that? And it was really good. And with Younger, I mean, I would say uh, I'm sure you'll disagree because there's there's a lot of nuance there. But I would say to my ear, the final isn't so far off from the really? demo. I, yes, I think from the original demo. It's pretty far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where, like, the broad strokes of it are the same to me, but there was clearly such a a longer process of winnowing with Younger, because you have, you have this demo version, you have a number of these different, you have the upstate, and then you have the primal scream version. Right. What What's going on? That's a sound check version. So I had written this song, I write on tour a lot now, um, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy it, and, you know, in part because I get depressed, and I mean, I used to think, like, I still kind of think that your best writing is probably done when you're in your best shape. But if you have a honed skill set, if you don't have to worry too much about, am I getting my meters right and and, and the music stuff, and if that stuff is a pleasant distraction from your interior landscape, and yet you have a a discordant, you know, unpleasant stuff going on in your spirit or wherever, that can be a good combo. And it's a good way to distract yourself for a couple of hours, you know, so you don't sit there and, and soak in your own ill feeling. And so, yeah, so I, so I write on tour, and, uh, and I had written that one in the basement, like I say, the, the basement dressing room of the Riviera in Chicago. But I wrote it there, and it was, I, I sent thing things to the guys pretty quick most of the time. I was like, this one's going to be good, and this will be nice. Um, and I think it was just a couple nights later, maybe even one night later, I was like, hey, let's start playing. Let's, you know, we're not going to see each other for a couple months. It was uh, Minneapolis, and it might have been the last night of tour. I was like, let's let's get let's see what we can do. Let's, let's start looking at stuff. And John played this beat that was a primal scream style beat. Yeah, I mean, I, I could tell it was, it sounded like a live thing, I assumed, sound check. 
Uh, part of the yeah. reason I knew it was a live thing is because um, the mix is so off in terms of instrument to voice. Yeah. Your voice is deeply buried. Well, okay. you're hearing my monitors, right? I don't, I yeah. don't think I know if I'm even in my monitor at that point. And then you, you, this was one of, I think, only two on the album that you've played live before uh, recording this. Two? End. I thought this was the only one. Passaic. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, Passaic is its whole own story that we'll get to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you played this once in Alabama. You'd written in the notes you'd played it once in Alabama. And the weird thing about the internet is I could look up your Alabama playlist from the last year. Right. Somebody has, you know, been like, untitled new song and then did their best to transcribe the lyrics. <laughs> really? I didn't know those were there. And then, like, leaving blanks because some of it, it was just, I guess, on the recording is hard to, to understand. Yeah. Well, I don't know who has the recording because I don't think the recording is out there. I'm not sure if it is. I'm uh, sure someone on a phone or something. Someone has it, but I don't know if it circulates. Um, and that's, and that's a, for me, a very noteworthy difference if somebody has one versus does it circulate. Um, but yeah, no, I did that. It was the opening number at the University of South Alabama, a show I really enjoyed. Um, because it just felt like it, you know. I like. I mean, I, I, my least favorite thing about the age of the internet is you can't do that more often. You can't. You can't be workshopping songs live because then people hear them, and you don't. You want people to hear them in the audience, but you don't want them to really enter the broader conversation of your work. It'd be nice if they could just stay there for that night, but they can't. That's just reality. I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that because because you most of these songs you've ma- you've kept kind of to yourself until well, yeah, recorded. Well, yeah, you have to it, do that. So. Yeah, and has that changed the process, not being able to play this stuff live? So we've talked about this a lot over the past five years. Transcendental Youth, we decided not to care. Transcendental Youth, we decided we were going to tour these songs uh, before we record them. Mm-hmm. Right? And we played a bunch of them live. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it's something you have to be thinking about. You have to, you know, have to tell your people. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to play a new one this night, you know, and uh, which I, I mean, I usually write my dress st- my set lists. 15 or 20 minutes before I go on stage. So, uh, I mean, they, they share a lot of songs from night to night, but I don't, I don't have a printed set list that we go, this is what we're doing tonight, you know? So, but yeah, no, that's, that's one of the, for me, the major downside for me just personally is like, I used to always play new songs. I couldn't stand to play a set without some brand new stuff in it, right? I hated, you know, and especially the first night of tour, oh, I got to play five. You can look at German set lists from me and Peter in 95, right? Half the stuff on there is on nothing. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm just playing new stuff. And to me, that's exciting, right? But it's not exciting if everybody in the whole world can hear it the next day. Then it's boring to me, right? Then that's like all the electricity of sharing something that's unique to the room. Some people describe that as an elitist tendency. I don't think that's true. Things can be special for small groups of people without being elitist, right? There's a, you know, we don't, I have a family meal that's very pleasant. If everybody in the world <laughs> comes into the house, then it's not the same thing, right? It's a, it's like there's a intimacy is a value, right? And the internet has, I mean, has had a giant impact on the general concept of intimacy, and that's in the concert venue is one of those places. Uh, the monologist Mike Daisy, I remember uh, once had a thing, and I forget which show I've seen him perform a number of times, but he was talking about part of the appeal of theater is the fact that most people can't see it. That when you do a work of theater, the only people who are seeing that performance are the people in that room. And that's, if you didn't see it, you didn't see it. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's, that's the nature of theater is ephemeral. Right? It's really, you can't even film it. It's not the same. No, I mean, that's, you know, we, we do these Welcome to Night Vale live shows and we're constantly being asked by promoters and stuff, do you have footage? And we never film it because in our experience, live theater never, ever translates to video. Something that is gripping and magical in, in person you put that on a screen, even filmed well, and it just looks flat. Yeah, yeah. No, that's they used to. I mean, there are films made of 
great productions, but those are their own things, right? They said, today yeah. is the day we're going to film it, and we're going to do this. We have multiple camera angles and stuff like that. So Yeah, I mean, you need someone who – an experienced director who yeah, knows totally. what they're doing. It, it's one of these difficult issues because it does feel like it probably constrains you not being yeah. able to play this stuff, but also there's no way out. There's no way to be like, please stop this entire ecosystem yeah, of no, recording. Yeah, there's no point in – there's really no point in – and getting mad about it. I mean, the thing is, like, people know I hate being filmed. I mean, I hate it, right? But is there any point at all in complaining about that? No, you're not going to change people's desire to film it. No one no one really cares how you feel. And that's fine because it's I'm not there, as I said in the previous episode. It's not for my feelings that I'm up there. I'm there to provide something for people who have paid to see it, and hopefully they get what they want. You know, that's really important to me to be pleasing the people who are in front of me in some way. I'm not there to to say, here, help me have an experience that I enjoy, to some extent, right? I mean, I'm also mindful of the people who are next to these people. I think it's probably not the most fun thing in the world to be standing next to somebody who's, like, trying to hold their arm real steady and looking at their phone. And that's the thing. If you say, this is a new song now, you will see a bunch of cameras go up. That, I have a real bug in my ear about, or, well, the proper phrase is bug up my ass. So, but, uh, but because the first performance of a song will literally never be the best performance of that song or even a particularly good version of that song. It will almost never have anything interesting about it except that it was the first time, right? Mm -hmm. The song will absolutely, I'm willing to say this is an absolute, there's never been a first performance of a song by any artist that was the best one of that song by that artist, unless he never played it again, right? But uh, was it, um, this, maybe this wasn't the first time. I think it was, though, the version of Purple Rain that ended up in the album was him debuting it at live at a club, and then they pushed yes. it up in the studio. But I bet he played it a lot better later <laughs> on. It was the version for the album, right? That was, and then it had, had an energy. But I would be willing to bet that on the Purple Rain tour, it reached heights because that's the nature of performing a song. Is like you do at some point. This is making me feel weird because like I just made up the set list for the next tour. And Peter observed there's no goths stuff on it. I was like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we played a hundred shows last year, didn't we? As I kind of don't want to. If I got to play Eldritch again this year, I know what I'm going to do, you know. And and then I'm thinking, yeah, but I listen to the Grateful Dead a lot. Yeah. Those guys were not – they played me and my uncle. Who knows? Well, you do know if you go to headyversion.net, you can count exactly how many times they played every song. And so then I think of it as a personal failing as a musician that I can't stay engaged or as a songwriter maybe. But uh, but for me, uh, freshness is a thing, you know. And uh, But yeah, but most, most songs, the first version of it played, Prince is also an outlier because of his perfectionism. Um, but uh, it's not going to be any good at all, right? It'll be okay at, at best. And people, like, have this weird like, – it's, it's very much an authenticity fetish, like that there's something special in the first performance. And the only special thing is it's the first time you're hearing it, right? That's what's special is, like, you suddenly – if you're a fan of the artist, you now have to be listening hard to hear what's going on. You have to suddenly engage – the reader part of your mind in a way that you don't if you're hearing a song you've already listened to a dozen times and sung for yourself. But but yeah, so that's, I mean, it, it stops me from playing as much new stuff as I wish I would like to. I would prefer to be playing more new stuff live. And how does it affect for these two songs that you'd played live? I mean, this one you'd only played once. Yeah. Um, no, I played it once. I don't remember why. I think I just wanted to make it special because uh, not many people play down in South Alabama in Mobile, and I really like it down there. And so, I, you know, when I'm playing a place I don't get to go often, I want them to have something special. And I thought that would be cool, play something brand new. Nobody's ever heard it. And so I did that. How does it affect the recording, if it does, 
deciding how to record it for the album, having played it in front of an audience. That that didn't at all. Okay. Uh, the pre-production is much more important for that. Is is what you? I keep threatening to talk more about pre-production, so now is a good time. Great. Um, pre-production is a profound luxury that most bands don't have, but that used to be very standard. And what it means is you go into a studio that is usually a much cheaper studio than the one you're going to record the album in. And you do dry runs at recording what you're going to do because recording with multiple people, you know, there's a lot of, there's so many things to account for that we could have a whole, a whole running podcast about what's it mean to go into a studio and make a record. You know, what are you doing? Are you taking with the Mountain Goats demos recorded by one guy and then translated to other people who don't have that much of a chance to play together outside of tour in the studio and so forth? But once you get in the studio, often people track bass and drums first together. Right, um, but some producers, Roy Thomas Baker, right, the guy who produced Bohemian Rhapsody and the Cars. I think he does uh, drums and guitar first, which is like weird to me. Like, uh, but there's a number of ways to do it. You can record it live. Many people prefer to do the vocals later. I like to often be singing live if I can, though I would prefer to be singing with, without playing. But then some many producers, Tony Dugan from Tallahassee, says, no, nah, it's better when you're singing and playing at the same time, which I thought was a weird, I bet you Bell and Sebastian doesn't do that, who he also produced. But for me, that was the way. And uh, you do get a little less, I get less self-aware if I'm playing and singing at the same time. So then you can probably get a, a more in the groove. It can be hard to find that groove when everybody's done their parts and you're trying to land on top of them, right? But in pre-production, you get to try all this out. Let's do a version where I'm playing and singing. At the same time, let's do a version where I'm not. Let's do a version on Fender Rhodes. Let's do a version on the piano. Let's slow it down two clicks. Let's speed it up five clicks, right? And pre-production is just doing, you could do it as a reggae number, whatever. We don't do that, but pre-production versions are the ones where you're feeling your way through. So when you do show up at the studio that's costing a ton of money, you have some experience of it. Now, if you do pre-production outside of the producer's presence, he might, when he gets there, say, okay, well, I listened to your pre-production version. I don't think that's the direction at all. Right, and this happened a few times here, uh, but uh, but yeah, it was for us. We haven't always. It's taken me twenty years to get to a point where I'm going to say, "Look, I'm going to spend my own money on some pre-production versions, so that we can spend time in the studio, feel our way through this, and then not be having battles." Right, not not be going, "Okay, we got to do this one. This is going to take forever." So we did pre-production on Strychnine, we did it on Doc Gooden, we did it on Younger and Passaic, right? Uh, because when we get to the Passaic episode, which will totally be the most interesting episode of this podcast. Um, so, so just skip ahead. It's a side, well, it's a side two number. You really won't understand what we're talking about until you get there, <laughs> unless you've, and you've listened to the other episodes several times over delicious meals from Blue Apron. So, uh, but uh, if they don't sponsor us, we'll just bleep that out. No, no, I, I must insist. <laughs> you can, please, if you do bleep that out, just change the color. Like, have somebody who sounds nothing like me say, you know, you know delicious meals from Yellow Apron. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, so pre-production, I mean, it's, it's really amazing because you really get the luxury of saying, well, this is, we spent four hours doing this, and that's where we went. That's, that's what this, and some of the decisions are so capricious to put a clav, a clavinet on, uh, on Passaic to, uh, you know, you get to try out a bunch of stuff. Right, And then in Owen's case, he would say, this is all really interesting, and I want everybody to pick what they're going to play and play that instead of trying out all these different looks during one song. Right, I want you to play. There was a bunch of piano over the, the pre-production version of uh, Younger, I think when it was called Bitter Traces, and I liked some of those piano passes pretty nice, but they were from a jazz space. I'm not 
a good player, so they're not proper jazz, but they're like jazz. And Owen was just not interested in that at all. probably try and task Matt with bringing some of that back when we play it live. We haven't yet decided about that because he plays sax at the end, but that sax is not elsewhere in the song, I don't think. But he does do that sax solo is one of the most amazing. Yeah, let's talk about it. It ends with... I was there. (laughs) I was there. That was so... I mean, Matt Douglas has changed my life musically. You know, he's this... uh, I love him two pieces. uh, and, uh, And we communicate on this level that, I mean... I get very emotional about it. It's like this, our, our musical communication is profound to me. And both of I mean, you know, my dad, as I've talked about before, played jazz. And uh, uh, so I was raised on listening to that stuff. After I was five, I was only hearing it when I would stay with dad. But, uh, but still, dad talked to me a lot about jazz. The last time we spent time, I was asking him to tell me to give me lessons because he went through this period of his life where he decided he wasn't a good enough player. And he became sort of a devotee, like in an almost religious sense, of a teacher named Gene Confer. He was practicing six hours a day. I was so resentful and angry at the time. It was my summer with my dad, and he would be just practicing in Autumn in New York. That was the song he was trying to get perfect. And, man, I did not want to hear it. I would just, it wasn't that he was neglecting me, because it was usually like after I go to bed, I'd hear him practicing for two or three hours. Da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. He was checking the legato. He was checking the diminuendo. He was everything. Da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and voicing. So I was like, oh, my God. My God. But I learned about voicings and about sculpting, about less is more, about getting out of the way of the tune. And Matt went to school here at NYU um, and and is a jazz guy and, you know, did the thing where when you're studying jazz in New York, you're, you're going to shows all the time. You're sitting in all the time. And when we'd done the track, I forget, he plays on the basic. The basic has like everybody playing together. I forget what, what, what I think he's playing one of several guitars there. But I forget how who first had the idea for sax solo at the end. But as soon as somebody said, it, I was like, solo, an actual solo. Yes, we got to do this. And he laid down, I think, five or six different takes, and we were all going progressively more and more ape for everyone. But I think that is take two. I think it's take two with a minor fix somewhere. And it is, I'm in awe of how wonderful it is. It's just so good. Uh, it's interesting because the last time we were talking about a guitar solo, uh, yeah. that was take two. Is that right? I, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if it's a thing of you get progressively wilder, and that's really cool. But at yeah. a certain point, you're like, the one that was second most wild is well, the one that works. Well, the, the thing is, I mean, I think it's, there's a, I'm a big original energy guy, right? My demos, what's good about them is you're hearing it so fresh. Like, I don't know how to sing it yet. I'm reading from a lyric sheet. I'm still finding my way around. There's going to be some accents and some of them are going to be good. But the thing is, all of his solos had a much to recommend them. The question is, which one fits in the track best, right? I mean, like, they were all good. Um, but, I mean, seriously, we were jumping up and down. These are these are experiences that can't be shared, really. Like you try to talk about them, but if you weren't in the room, it's hard to understand how, you know, we're just sitting there, you know. And we've been studio days are 12 hours, right? And so I think this is like an hour 10 of, of day three or four, you know, uh, or even five. To find yourself when you're working these 12-hour days continually going, it's hour 10 of the fifth day in a row, and I'm still discovering how much I love music. It's it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And uh, that's so it's it's my single favorite thing on the record. 
map of your coordinates Send out scouts by day Dole out mercenary pay For restless young subordinates It never hurts to give thanks to the local gods You never know who might be hungry It never hurts to scan the windows on the upper floor I saw a face there once before when I was younger
In League with Dragons is out now. Buy it. The Mountain Goats are also on tour throughout the year. Go and see them. We have two new Welcome to Night Vale episode collection books out right now. These are fully illustrated with a ton of behind-the-scenes commentary. It's a great way to try out the show. Another great way to try out the show is to listen to it. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats is a production of Night Vale Presents with Merge Records. It is produced by Christy Gressman. Editing by Grant Stewart. Mixing by Vincent Cachione. All music courtesy of the Mountain Goats and Merge Records. Thank you to Christina Rents, Ryan Madison, Seaside Lounge in Brooklyn, and The Rubber Room in Chapel Hill. Check out nightvalepresents.com for more information about this show and all of our other shows, like Start With This. Ready to make your own art? Or just lost track and haven't made any of your art in a while? Not sure where to start? Start with this. Each episode, me and my Night Vale co-creator, Jeffrey Craner, discuss a different topic in making art, such as collaboration or feedback. Then we give you two assignments, one to consume and one to create. Start making your own art, one easy assignment at a time, with Start With This. Thanks for listening, and hail Satan. From the creators of Welcome to Night Vale, Alice Isn't Dead, and within The Wires comes a new Audible original, Unlicensed. In the outskirts of Los Angeles, where the cul-de-sacs and strip malls sprawl into the desert, two unlicensed private investigators scrape by on whatever small cases come their way. But when a teenage girl pleads for them to take the strangest case of their career, this unlikely pair, with no resources and no backup, will follow a trail of seemingly unconnected cases, which will lead them to a ransom a murder, a mysterious wellness center, and a conspiracy that might go all the way to the governor. It's important to catch small fires early. They don't stay small for long. Unlicensed. Available now at audible.com slash unlicensed.